out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome to the C86 show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. Let's just face facts. Um, and this week, it's going to be the turn of Vic Goddard, who I spoke to, um, it was a little bit, uh, a few years ago, in fact. But I was going for my archive and thought I should sort of put this up as well. So um, Vic, famous for many things, but you'll find out more about that during the interview. Anyway, after a few minutes of casual chat, as you do, because um, we never met each other before, let's face it. Anyway, um, we would, I was talking about sort of music being in his DNA because um, obviously he's still making music and releasing albums. And uh, yes, this was Vic's response. Vic, it's all over to you now. Well, I think when you get to our age, well, my, I'm 61 now, you sort of start looking at everything that hasn't come out and start panicking. You know what I mean? You think, shit, no one knows all these songs. I better do them, you know. Yes. The next sort of 20 years, get get on with it, you know. I know. That's what I'm doing with the group that used to be the Joe Boxers I've got back together with. We've got all these um, songs that we've totally forgotten about from... Um, 1979. Right. I mean, we're doing new stuff as well, but we've got this, um, we've got all these rehearsals, rehearsals tapes, um, like shitloads of it, five hours worth of it. And a lot of it, we don't even know um, who it is, some of it. <laughs> but there's a lot of my old demos on there that have never been used that were written for um, various groups, like um, a group called The Pole Cats. I wrote a whole album Yes. And um, Johnny Britton, who's in the group, he was um, he did an album in '79 that never came out. So that's what we're putting out for the first time. God. So it's got a few of these tracks on it. Yeah. I wrote for him. Um, so look, so it's nice getting back together again with all these people from you know that I haven't seen for nearly 40 years is really weird. It must be very strange. Is it possible to give us a bit of a, a background about your kind of the, the early musical period? Because obviously, you know, with a lot of the bands I interview, which are from the 80s, they talk about the, you know, the punk period as being influential, but they were very young. But then, but you were there at the at the very start of this kind of musical trend, because people like my brother, who are a little bit older than me, I suppose actually he's more your age. He was, he was definitely into the world of prog rock and, yes, and Genesis and a bit of... Um, Deep Purple, but you were much more into the kind of more punk and rock, or, you know, like that Dr. Feelgood uh, vibe, really, weren't you? Yeah, we got into Dr. Feelgood um, to about 74, I think. So when punk came along, it was, um, it was just totally different to that scene. You know, we've been going to see all the sort of pub rock groups like Eddie and the Hot Rods, Dr. Feelgood, Count Bishop and people like that. And they're all really doing the same format stuff, you know, sort of 12-bar stuff, either Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Jimmy Reed, all that stuff, which we liked, and that's why we used to go and see them all. But when the Sex Pistols came along, it was, it was just um, a whole new thing that we'd never seen. It didn't look anything like any of the pub rock groups at all for a start, and they were much more... Um, theatrical, you know, with we had a bit of theatricality from Wilco in the field Dr. Feelgood. Because 
outstanding. You know, he was he was the reason people went to see the group. Yeah, it's because it, no one had ever really seen anything that manic on a stage before. But when the Sex Pistols came on, it seemed like the whole thing was sort of totally chaotic. It was like having, um, you know, uh, something he'd never really sort of encountered before, really. Yes, and did it? Um, did you have to quickly sort of get back to the rehearsals and say, "Look, we got to, we're going to have to up our game and change it a bit"? No, no, we we didn't have any rehearsals. We didn't play an instrument at all. We weren't a group in that sense. We were just friends, and we we were actually um, we didn't think that there was any chance of us ever learning instruments, or it wouldn't have even entered our minds in the pub rock when we were seeing those pub, pub rock groups get involved in music because it, it, there was enough of them doing it. They didn't need another lot doing this. You know what I mean? There was um, no need for it. Yes. I mean, we were only going to see them probably because we couldn't go to see Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley or Jimmy Reed. You know, it was like a substitute, the next best thing sort of thing. And we would sort of look out certain groups because they did certain Chuck Berry songs or Bo Diddley songs really well and just go and see them really but just them doing one or two songs yes but everything was so cheap in those days because you could just go up to the West End and just go into gigs and we were only on the dole you didn't need money it was like probably like less than 50p to get in Yes, it's a bit more expensive now, isn't it? <laughs> and some, actually, some of the Doctor Feelgood, when we first used to see them at a pub called Kensington, it, it, it was free. I think it was Sunday lunchtime. You just went down there, and they they were at the bar and in there. You know, they were playing just to get more people in the pub. Yes. Well, apparently, and I don't know if this is just one of those kind of strange news stories, which isn't true, but um, I think, did Lady Di, Di, Diane Spencer, like Dr. Feelgood as well? But I don't know if that was just one of those rumours that uh, someone started. I don't know if she'd have been, well, what age she'd have been, though, because we're talking 74. Oh, right. So I think she'd only been about 12. No, she? that was probably a bit too, <laughs> she was probably a bit too young. <laughs> she Perhaps... might have got into them when Wilco left, but, I mean, I don't think they were anything when he left i think i've just lost interest because they were just like any other boring pub rock band by then yes this and when is they true. did that milk and alcohol and all that so i couldn't stand that no and obviously i mean the one thing that because last year i did an interview with dear old fast eddie from motorhead who around that time was kind of forming you know the band with lemmy and uh Filthy yeah. Taylor. I mean, and it sounded from what he was saying that that, that London scene, you know, they were, everyone was kind of quite close together because everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people were living in squats, living on the dolls, sort of just getting by, you know, probably buying the same drugs from the same drug dealer. So did it, Did you feel part of a, a bit of a scene during that uh, mid to late 70s world? Um, no, because we were just uh, fans we, we weren't part of the scene as such. I mean, the groups we went to see, most of them came from sort of South End, didn't they? Can behind and right. they weren't from London. Yeah. So they would come in in a transit van, do a gig, and then drive back. But they were very approachable, you know. They they really liked you sitting down and having a chat with them, you know. Not Wilco, but the rest of Dr. Field were really approachable. We didn't really see it. Wilco was a 
bit apart from the group. He'd sort of suddenly appear just before they went on and then he'd disappear again. Whereas the rest of the group was sitting around drinking their pints of beer in the pub that you could just sit down and have a chat with them for as long as you wanted. So that was um, something that carried on in punk. You know, there wasn't any sort of barriers between the groups and the audience in the, in the pub rock days. And that, that just carried on through punk. Yes. And then in the early 80s, you obviously had a bit of a creative sort of surge or splurge because you kind of got two albums out, What's the Matter Boy and Songs for Sale. So was that period particularly fruitful for you? No, no, it, was, it wasn't the early 80s. All those songs were all written 77, 78. That is when my really fruitful period was. It's just that they never came out at that time because... Um, we had uh, different groups being, you know, the group that I'd already recorded an album in 77, and um, that that just disappeared because it was never, um, what happened was our manager, Bernard Rhodes, he was really busy with The Clash at that time, and we were sort of, um, second, you know, we always had, had someone managing us on his behalf, sort of slightly removed. So when it got to our album coming out, it just never came out. It it just sat there. And then there was a studio flood, the tapes. Um, we never got the tapes. We, we only ever got to hear Ambition, which was the one track that Bernard um, wanted to put out from a, as a single off the album. And that was it. You know, we didn't get any. We never actually, we still to this day haven't heard what we did. So all those songs were then re-recorded. Well, not all of them, but the majority of them were re-recorded with the Black Arabs, Bernard's other group. And that is what subsequently became What's the Matter, Boy. Right. And then uh, in 1980, um, I I was really the songwriter for Bernard Rose without a group from 1979 to late 1980. And that is when Johnny Britton entered the picture because um, he actually was my guitarist in 78 on tour with the Buzzcocks. Um, we, we were doing all the songs that were on that What's the Matter Boy, but when it came to recording it, he wasn't on the album. Um, so he had gone back to Bristol to form a group, brought them back to London as a sort of rockabilly group, and that was the Joe Boxers. Effectively, yes. so when Bernard Rhodes started um, thinking of what to do with Johnny, he was recording songs and he was getting a lot of jobs doing um, modelling for the um, girls' magazines like Jackie and that sort of thing. <laughs> so he started earning a lot of money by being on the cover of these teen girls' magazines, and he sort of stopped doing music. He just went into a different world. So. With that, his group were all had been formed in Bristol, and they're all in London without a singer. So that's when Bernard had the idea of putting me together with them to see what would happen. Right. What, what happened was um, I I'd already written a lot of rockabilly songs at that point, but I was trying to do something totally different. I wanted to try and do sort of classic American songbook style songs. And um, they were quite musically provis- proficient. So 
together with their pianist Dave Collard, who's um, now living in America. So he's he's the only one that hasn't rejoined. He's actually in the group the the as well. So he's been doing a few gigs with them. He's been over to London, so we have actually met up with him. But me and him sort of worked quite hard and with the arrangements and um, came up with the album Songs for Sale, really. Right. My God. I mean, the one thing that I've sort of noticed with a lot of people I've interviewed that you know, there's certain things. I mean, the music industry is pretty tricky and you can get tripped up quite easily. But, but obviously, kind of having that kind of publishing and ownership of music is quite tricky. And from what you were saying with, with you know, Bernard Rhodes and people, was, was um, did you manage to sort of navigate that, that kind of period or, or that kind of world, you know, successfully, you know, sort of knowing you? Not financially, <laughs> but definitely creatively, because um, that's, that period, that's when I really learned. I was writing songs on a sort of um, on a weekly basis, ten a week, and only getting paid when I came up with the ten. So that was quite a good discipline. Yes. So that's where all these songs, a lot of them, came from that turned into the songs for sale, and then later the Trouble album, the really jazzy album I did in the mid eighties. And I still actually, I still delve back and pick old songs depending on what group I'm with, you know. I've got quite a big back catalogue of stuff that has never been out, you know, as well as all the stuff that has been out. So I'm never really short songs, but we're um, we're doing some new songs as well. And so, yeah, it's quite a mix at the moment. Yes. And then, because obviously the 80s, which was quite an interesting period for some people, you know, um, I think for artists who were sort of about before the 80s, they found it quite difficult. You know, people like, I suppose a bit like David Bowie and people like, I don't know, Robert Plant, Rod Stewart, people like that. You know, their 80s... They went off the radar a bit, didn't they? Well, they kind of chased the kind of mainstream sound and it did sound like they rather than them leading the scene they, yeah, they, they almost became kind of followers and kind of victims of the people who, were, who had originally copied them yeah and so I don't think they look back it's interesting that David Bowie's kind of albums from that period have been remastered recently and uh, have taken out that 80s production quality which was quite sharp because you had the mainstream top of the pop stuff which was quite you know that Trevor Horn production sound, or you had Great the indie, sound, yeah. yeah, or that indie pop sound that that was kind of you know like the Smiths and Echo and the Buddy Men and and all that kind of stuff. But for you, obviously, you decided during that period to to give music up. Was that quite a big decision to make? Um, in the mid eighties, um, I'd sort of not really got anywhere. And I didn't actually think I would. You know, I was actually doing things that I didn't really want to do a lot. And uh, I just decided to just get a normal job, you know. It's actually the best decision I ever made, really, I think, at that point. Yes. Because I was just getting to that point, getting towards 30, where you're thinking... You know, do I want to do this for the rest of my life or do I want to try a proper job? I'd always wanted to be a postman, funny enough. (laughs) 
So I just decided to turn my dream into reality. Yes. I've stayed there 31 years. But the thing is, by almost accident, sort of in, I think it was when Johnny Thunders died, that's what triggered everything. I was, um, my wife bought me a guitar for Christmas. That was the first trigger, because I went about eight years without any musical instruments. I didn't even think about writing songs or anything like that. And um, I took, when I first joined the post office, I was just a postman, and then very quickly I became the transport manager. And I've never thought that I'd ever learned to drive, and I was like driving HTVs around as transport manager. So my life sort of totally changed. And then when Johnny Thunders died, I had this acoustic guitar. And um, I was reading an obituary by Chris Salovich of him, and just involuntarily this song came out, uh, Johnny Thunders. So I just wrote it really quickly. And um, the other coincidence at that time, when I was transport manager, one of the drivers that um, I was friendly with was really into four-track recording. And he only lived around the corner from where we worked. So I used to go up to work around his place sometimes, and he would show me what he'd been doing, you know, the songs he'd been writing, and found out I wrote songs, and we sort of teamed up. Then um, we we did about an album's worth of demos and played them to another postman friend of mine. <laughs> and he was actually a record dealer on the side, and he he knew Boz Bora, who was he wasn't. Oh yeah, I think he was with Morrissey even then. This yes. must have been early nineties. He's friendly with Boz Bora because Boz Bora was also a record dealer, and they used to do the record fairs next door to each other. The big record fairs that Boz used to do in those days. So he told him about me and Boz came round and helped us because he was really good at recording drum machines and all that thing. I just bought my first drum machine. Boz came round to Witten all the way from North London just to sort of give us a hand for a few days. Yes. And um, so he ended up doing a track for us on, on an album as well then and showed me how to operate my drum machine. And I've never looked back since on the songwriting. As soon as I got the hang of the drum machine, I started writing, instead of on a guitar, I started writing to beats. Yes. And that sort of changed my whole sort of way of looking at things, really. And going back to that, that um, record that you brought out, or, or a sort of... Um Right, which which which, fe- which featured Johnny Thunders. This is this the album which was titled "The End of the of the Sunny yeah. People," which, which yeah, that's it. yes, well, and that and that came out on. Mills, who, uh, with the record dealer, he heard the track and he said, "That's really good. That needs to be out. You can't just leave that." He said, "Why don't you send it to someone in the music biz?" And I said, so, so. "I said, well, who?" He, he listened to the whole albums worth of demos and he said well there's one person that I can think of that you should send this to and he came to work and he gave me Prince's address wow and I thought what the f-? <laughs> so I thought, oh. he said send him to Prince he's got his own record label um, but I didn't 
in the end, I'd send them to Jeff Travis because I thought, well, I know Jeff Travis, and that's more likely than Prince. <laughs> but Jeff really liked Johnny Thunder, so he wanted to do it as a single straight away. And then when we did the single for his singles club, he um, suggested doing a whole album with Edwin as the producer. So yes. that is how I got back into music, totally by accident, really. Yes, and that's the, the, the legendary Edwin Collins, isn't it? And yeah. And that was and but that came out on I thought that came out on postcard records. Yeah, that's right, it did because um at that time Jeff Travis was being taken over by another company, I think. Oh god, they probably so, had yeah. I remember Jeff ringing me and saying, Look, I'm uh, I can't do this anymore because I've been taken over. I've got a load of your master tape. Um, from the retrospective album, sort of uh, stock back on all the old stuff. If you want to come and collect all your master tapes, you better do it quickly, you know, before this other company takes over. So yeah. that's what I did. So that's how I got all my old master tapes back. Not all of them, obviously, but all the ones that are in their possession. Yes, and that was the early nineties. Trouble album. I got um, a whole of the retrospective album. in the wardrobe ever since. <laughs> yes, well, it's nice to have them, though. It's yeah, good. I mean, I've got all my masters from all my albums, except for the one that, obviously, the, seven, the punk one that no one's got. No. But then, during... So, so obviously, you were sort of juggling your work with the post office, as well as suddenly making music. So you At that time, yeah, I was, because when I was um, transport manager, I was suddenly going to Japan on tour with Edwin, you know, so I was... Um, I was doing quite well at the post office, but I also had this sort of sideline going on in music. Yes. And then during, during the 90s, did you continue to, to sort of keep recording and sort of building your kind of community? Um, not really. I did. It's very sporadic. I did um, sort of odd things. Like, um, I did another album with it with long-term side effects which also was on, um, not Rough Trade, it was called Tugboat Records at that point, because they'd been taken over and they'd started off a little thing called Tugboat. So I released that and um, Trouble Album, which was put out in the 80s, but wasn't actually properly mixed. It was just like um, monitor mixes that were put out as the album. So I had the masters and I said to Jeff Travis, you know, can I go into Edwin's and um, redo the singing on, and remix the whole album, put it out again as in trouble again, which yeah, he said, yeah, by all means. So I did that as well. I did a couple of singles for um, Creeping Bent Lock, independent little labels. I did another single for um, Pat Gilbert, who started his own little label. It was all sort of little bits and bobs like that in the 90s. It wasn't really... Um, I wasn't doing a lot of gigs, just a couple a year, maybe, or very sporadic. It was only really in sort of um, 2004 or 5 I started doing lots of gigs with my own group again. Yes. Um, between sort of the 90s and about that time, I'd been borrowing my friend's group, another post band. Uh, who had a group called the Bitter Springs who were doing um, their own gigs.
they they learned a set of my songs so that they could get gigs by being my support group sort of thing. So yes. I carried that. I'm still doing, and now I'm actually playing piano for them. I played in Brighton with them last Saturday night supporting the monochrome set. I actually learned, I've been trying to learn the piano over the last sort of year and a half. Yes. And then you also brought out um, an EP with the, was it Train Spotting author as well? Um, oh, Blackpool. Yes. Yeah, in Welsh's Blackpool. And that was supposed to be a, a, a musical that was, um, it was only performed at a college in Edinburgh, though. But it never really took off. But I wrote a whole um, album's worth of songs with Irving's lyrics. Yes. But there was no, there was no money to record it, really. So I was just doing it off my own bat. And uh, we just struggled to get more than an EP done just for financial reasons. Yes. We, we wanted to do a whole album of it. We still, I mean, we used to play all the songs live, but we never actually recorded any more than those four. Right, I've oh, got you. But uh, still do, do the songs live. I mean, they're, they're just classics, some of those old Blackpool songs. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you've never had a problem. Well, it sounds like you must have had a few moments, but, but kind of making, recording and writing music has never been something that you've struggled with. It sounds like you've always managed... No, writing has never been a problem. It's recording because I've always had um, financial constraints. You know, it's, uh, it's not like I've ever had a relationship with a record label where they... It's always been that I've done the recording and then taken it to a record label. You know, I've never been in a situation where the record label said, right, go and make a record, here's the money. Mm. It's always been the other way around. That was something that Bernard Rhodes sort of drilled into us so in, in the punk era. He just said, you know, you've got to present record companies with a finished product or else and say, take it or leave it, because if not, they'll just meddle all the way. You know, if they're actually paying for it, it gives them an element of control that you don't want them to have. Yes. I've always tried to stick to that, because it's true that if you're the one paying for it, every decision is really down to you. If you don't like it, it doesn't happen. Whereas if someone else is paying for it, it's really a sort of, 50-50 thing you you know you both got to like it and you haven't always got the same taste as um people in record labels that's the problem yeah and then and then sort of coming to the current day you've sort of again sort of been very prolific sort of re- recording and and sort of yeah collaborating or, or sort of certainly working with other people including the, there was the nightingales wasn't there commercial suicide man yeah. and also yeah. then you you did a um, an album, or no, single with with Helen McCookery book as well. So obviously, the the kind of the music community is is still sort of very vibrant from that period. Yeah, we're still all going. Lawrence is still going. Go kart mows aren't playing with him uh, next spring as well. Yes. I mean, <laughs> Lawrence is someone who I've always like you know doing gigs with. He's just like one a one off, you know. Well, it's interesting because there's a couple of people I've interviewed. There was there was Lawrence, and then there was also a guy called Momus as well. Who? Um, yeah, I met Momus. Yeah. Who? who He's was, got. He put me in one of his songs. I'm not surprised. He he yeah. you know, he he puts he puts a lot into his songs, and I know he's. Uh, 
Yes, I think he did an album once where people could suggest what to include in a song. You know, you had to pay a subscription or something, because a friend of mine... Um, That's a good idea. Yeah. Who, who, sort of, <laughs> ..who sort of... ..who put her daughter into one of his songs. And, um, but he was bringing out an album a year, and also Lawrence was another prolific artist who was bringing out an album a year at, yeah. at most times of his life. So, obviously, you, you're in that sort of same category of, of kind of... Um, and Prince... You know, until he died, unfortunately. But but um, yeah. people who didn't have it don't have a problem sort of bringing out the music at all. No. You know. No, I've always just done it as a matter of course. You know, um, you not yeah, you know, it's just like breathe, living and breathing to me. Yes. And was it when you were sort of at school and you know in your very young days? Were you somebody who was a, a kind of a always writing then or doing poems or sort of got, had no. a, a literary kind of angle to it? Cause no, not... not at all. But what I did do when I was very young, I used to make up little tunes based on things I would see just on, on the side, of, you know, just advertising or whatever. I remember doing that from a young age. Right. Being able to come up with melodies really, really easily off the top of my head. But not the literary thing. That only started off when I went to um, went to grammar school. So they got me into um, the French and English literature through that, really. Yes. Really good school I went to. Which helps a lot. And did you... And, and now, you, you know, you're sort of still making new music, but sort of going back and sorting out your, your vast back catalogue, is that... You know, because I noticed with a lot of people that going back and sorting out their kind of archives has become kind of something, I think, emotionally happy to do because there's been a period of time that's kind of gone. So there, there's any of those kind of kind of associations with sort of difficult periods or difficult managers or difficult band members who kind of have sailed down the sea, really. And, and also just kind of thinking, God, if we don't archive it now, this is all going to get just chucked in the skip and landfill. So have you also had that kind of motivation? No, mine's, um, I'm doing a book, aren't I? So a lot of my motivation is trying to put it all down on paper, really. I've got all the... I mean, all my archive is pretty, le- apart from all these songs that I was telling you about that no one's heard, the actual records that were made have all um, have nearly all been put out again. The only other, the one that hasn't, is Songs for Sale. Right. But they've all been reissued. I mean, What's the Matter Boy has been out twice. Once in the 90s, I think it was on Demon. And then again, in about 2000, saying Warner's, not Warner's, a Universal put it out. Yes. So, and then Trouble has come back as Trouble again. You know, we've had uh, a 30-odd year, no, at first I had a 20-odd years compilation, and then a 30-odd years. I mean, I could do a 40-odd years one now, but I'm more interested in doing, um, I've got my album, Mum's Revenge, which is all, uh, ready to be manufactured, but then I've also got halfway through a new album with the you know, with the old Joe Boxers, like what we've been working on. So we've got six songs ready to record already for another album. Yes, good. So I've got too much new stuff to really spend a lot of time on old music, but my um, archiving is all me writing down, I've done about 120 pages of A4 so 
Right. And that, and you've you've got that sort of hoping to come out next year. Um, well, as soon as I finish it, really. Yes. And has that been has that been an an enjoyable or interesting experience? Yeah, really good. I love doing it. In fact, um, I live in West London, and we practice in Whitechapel because Sean, the drummer, of, uh, used to be in the Joe Box. He's got his own art gallery, believe it or not. So we we rehearse in the cellar of his art gallery. So it takes me an hour on the underground from here to there. So that's where I get a lot of the book done because I come I'm doing about three or four sides of A4 every time I do that journey. Yes, well, that's a, yes, good time management. And just... Yeah. <laughs> I know, that saves the boredom of just looking into space. Because one of the bands that I really enjoyed in the 80s and thought, God, they're going to be huge, and obviously that was the kiss of death, was Working Week. Oh, um, I did an album with them, yeah, Trouble. Yes, and I didn't realise that connection, because they, they came along, and there was a kind of a bit of a scene with bands that sounded a bit like Working Week, and obviously... Yeah. I mean, I'd seen a few live, but then I heard that album that they did and and got it and thought, God, this is this is stunning. And then, you know, probably they broke up. I don't know how long they lasted, like actually. Uh, yes, I would imagine. So did that go into that particular, um, working with them, was that an, an enjoyable experience? Um, I would say, yes, it was. It, well, I wouldn't say the word enjoyable. I'd just say really good experience because I've learned a real lot about... Um, well, I've never worked with a jazz band singing with a proper jazz band before, so it was fantastic. Yes. I love doing that. And, uh, yeah, with the horns and all that sort of thing. I'd only ever done it with um, songs for sale. It was like a sort of almost like a punk version of saloon singing. But this seemed like, more like the real thing. When I was at work in week. Yeah, because I, <clears throat> I know that Shardy... It's just a shame that the, the album never got finished because there was a, another political situation with the record company. <laughs> it was Blanco y Negro, the label, and um, there was an argument, I think, between Jeff Travis and Mike Allway, and they went their separate ways while I was recording it. And I think what happened was some of it became L Records, which is my always own label, put out four tracks as an EP, and the rest it looked like it would never come out. Until about three years after that, when I got a phone call from Jeff Travis saying, look, your album's been lying there, can we put it out? But he didn't, um, he didn't, have a budget for mixing it so he, he used the sort of monitor mixes that were already there right so when it came out I, I was a bit horrified really but the thing was I'd left I thought I'd left music then so I wasn't really bothered about it I didn't think that um, you know I thought I was going to be um, Royal Mail was going to be my main career I was well, only career I wasn't thinking of music so it was only two years later when I got the master tapes. So I thought, well, I can do something about this now. Yes. And, um, so that was quite satisfying, being able to go back and all the all the things I didn't think were up to scratch 
Yeah. And is it quite straightforward doing a re-recording from master tapes? You know, cause... Yeah. You just wipe off what... On one of the songs, we wiped off the whole drum kit and just had the track without any drums. Right. Because I just didn't like what they'd done to the drums. It was like that, what you were saying, that big boom in 80s sound. And it just didn't, I just didn't think it fitted. So I just said, well, we don't need drums on this song. Some of them, I just thought my singing was awful. So I just redid the singing. And other things, we just got rid of certain instruments that we thought we were, get, were getting in the way. Yes. And I was really pleased with the results of that. Yes. That would be amazing. And just lastly, what would you, I mean, because obviously a huge amount of experience as well as kind of phenomenal output, did, what would you, what would your sort of key advice be from, you know, if you were, if you sort of wanted to just impart some, you know, words of wisdom to a, a young budding musician that was appearing on the scene? Oh, right. Um, well, practical advice, learn to drive. Especially if you're not a singer. If you're not a singer, it means you've always got things like amps, a drum kit. And, you know, with a lot of the problems with groups are, I've found <laughs> people not being able to drive. Like these, the gigs we're doing, um, normally I struggle with having a co-driver, so I would end up going up north, driving all the way up there, having to do a gig, and then having to drive all the way the next day, if, if you've got three, minimum of three drivers in the group, it's really easy. You've only got to do like 100 miles each and take it in terms. Yes. But on a musical level, I mean, I've always been into um, trying to put things together that don't naturally go together. So I call it disharmony. It's like a cross between discord and harmony. It's not, you know, musicians would tell you that you can't do that because that is in that key and that is in that key, but then your ear tells you that it sounds good anyway. So I would say don't listen to any musical rules, just go with what your ear says is good. Yes, yeah, that's um, good advice, actually. And obviously, you know, You've you've got sort of lots of projects for the new year. So do do you have sort of a whole sort of a load of recordings to sort of do in the next twelve months? No, I don't really think of it like that. Because this album that I've just finished is taking two and a half years. Right. I'm not thinking of time to see. We've got loads of gigs already. We're getting bombarded with gig offers for next spring. We've already got about ten or eleven. So. We're going to have to, I mean, we do, I've already um, discussed with the group about starting to do recordings. Uh, but when we when we play the songs live, it's going to make them even better. You know, I've always found that if you've played the songs live a few times, you get to know what works and what doesn't. So when you get to record it, you're not messing about trying to arrange things in the studio. It's all, it's all set in stone. Yeah. So that's the idea, because the album I've just done, nothing was set in stone. You know, some of the songs have gone through that 12 different sets of lyrics before the final ones come together. Yes. Whereas if you're doing it live, you're learning stuff live, what works, what doesn't. It um, 
I always remember actually this. I always remember the story of listening to um, it was Black Sabbath. They they were talking about their first album, and then because they'd been playing that that material on the road for quite a bit of time, when they went to record it in the studio, I think they only had a day. They they just had to sort of blast it out, but they found it kind of a piece of cake because they thought, "Well, oh God, we've been doing this. We know everything completely," and they just kind of put it down and had it done. And it, there was no kind of mystery for them. It was like, "Well, that's what we've been doing for several years now." So. Um, it kind of came easy to them, and they created that kind of classic first album. So yes, it it, it does work like that. Anyway, look, yep. Vic, I've got quite a bit there now, so that's fantastic. Right. So thank you ever so much for giving me your time for this, and I'll tell you when I put it out because um, you know I do this show, so you know I always put out a sort of a weekly show, and it's kind of features one artist. So that. It'd be amazing. So thank you again, and I hope it really goes well for the new year, and look forward to your book as well. All right, hopefully we'll be playing in Norwich as well. Yes, you should be. I know I saw a poster you're, you're supporting. Is it the Wolfhounds soon? Um, the Wolfhounds? I think they're playing with us somewhere, but I can't remember where. No, I think I've seen... Are the Wolfhounds Norwich band then? No, God, they're from... I don't know where they're from, London somewhere. I think it might be Edinburgh or Glasgow they're playing with us, possibly. Yes, I seem to... Yeah. They're playing in Newcastle on Friday night and then um, Edinburgh Saturday and then we're playing at the Mono Record Shop, you know, Stephen Pastel's place on Sunday. Oh, right, Stephen Pastel. Yeah. The legendary man. Yeah, Monorail Music. Yes. I've played there before, it's a really great record shop in Glasgow. Oh, so he runs that, does he? He's, yeah, he's one of the two. The two people that run it, he's, he's one of them. Yeah, because going back to Johnny Britton, because mm-hmm. obviously it was his looks, wasn't it? And he's got, yeah. has, and he's got a new album out as well, has he? Yeah, well, that, that is the album that never came out. It was, that he did in 79 before he became uh, a teen girl model. Uh, so Chris Bostock, the bass player of the Joe Boxers and Subway, said he's put it all together for Johnny because he used to work for um, for the Eurythmics doing all the mixing and all that. So he knows what he's doing on the, the mixing front. So he's put together Johnny's album and put it out really quickly to coincide with these gigs. Yes. And just because I'm not quite because with age, you get a bit confused. Is he still alive? Yeah, he's our guitarist, yeah. Oh, God, thank God for that. You yeah. Know, well, you have to be so careful nowadays, don't you? Cause I know. <laughs> because he's like, a bit chubbier than he used to, but he's still there. <laughs> has he still got the looks? Yeah, he's still got the looks. Excellent. Okay. No, I just... Yes, but it's always... It's, it's just sometimes you you ask how someone is, and they go, well, they died years ago. You think, oh, shit, sorry. Yeah. Oh, yes. No, the only one who's died from my group, really, is Bob Ward, the drummer, the original third. The subway set drummer who played on Ambition and all those old punk things. He died. He he joined Dexes and then he, I think he ended up playing for people like the Coffee Rejects or people like um, East one East London punk band. He was from Bethnal Green, but he died in the eighties. But that's that's the only one. And did you keep? And did you keep in touch with Boz Borman? No, no, I didn't. No, I don't know what I was spoken about since since when we did the uh, end of Surrey People in the early nineties. Yes, I shouldn't think he's doing any record dealing now either. Is he? 
No, he's he's Dean. <laughs> he's busy. Yes, he was with Morrissey. Anyway, look, this is brilliant, and I'll keep in touch. But thank you ever so much, Vic. And um, right. it sounds all good stuff. Pleasure. Take care. Bye bye. All right. Bye. Yes, how to end a conversation. I know, it's all a bit embarrassing. Anyway, that was me in conversation with Vic Goddard. Um, a big thank you for giving me the time for that, Vic. Much appreciated. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86 Show. I will be there. Keep it nice and positive. And also, all these shows have been archived, and you can find those on iTunes, Spotify, and um, Podbean. So, um, yes. Any band you ever wanted to listen to, that's it. It's all there. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe.